It's early Friday morning in first century Jerusalem. From this moment on, Jesus will be on trial for his life. Only a few hours ago, Jesus had told his disciples that Satan demanded to have them, that he might sift them like wheat. Little did they know the sifting would begin so soon. Good Friday moves in three successive acts. First, Jesus' arrest and Jewish trial. Second, his Roman trial. And third, his death by crucifixion. In an act that typifies the trial of Jesus, Judas identifies his former master in the most loving and affectionate way he could, with a kiss. As we've already seen, for someone so duplicitous, there may be no better way to betray the one and only Son of God than with a kiss. John tells us in 18, 4-5, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. John has been very clear from the beginning of his gospel that this man, Jesus, is the Word of God, co-eternal with the Father, through whom the entire world owes its existence. It's fitting then that he identifies himself in the arrest as I am, echoing the very name of God that we find in the Old Testament when Moses encounters the burning bush. What's more interesting is how the men react when he says it. In John 18, 6-8, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus gets the kind of reaction from the officers that one might expect if you attempted to arrest deity. Jesus, being the good shepherd, protects his disciples, who also are being held by the guards. But after they turn loose of the disciples, John tells us in 18.10, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Or Luke tells us in Luke 22.51, but Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. John 18.11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Matthew 26.53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? All of the Gospel writers are clear that Jesus, in spite of what is about to transpire, not only knew this was going to happen, but was going willingly. From the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is led by some of the Sanhedrin and the officers to the house of Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, where he's questioned briefly. Annas was formerly a high priest some years prior, and he still maintained a great deal of power and influence. Jesus gives a very few answers to Annas, so frustrated, he sends Jesus to his son-in-law Caiaphas's house, who was serving as high priest at the time. Gathered at the house of the high priest was at least a quorum of 23 members of the Sanhedrin, considered to be the whole council. The Sanhedrin is looking to make a formal charge against Jesus, worthy of a death sentence. So they began in Mark 14, 55 and 56, seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. 
for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. This is an important process for the Sanhedrin. According to Jewish law, it must be on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. It presents some difficulty if the Sanhedrin cannot get two people to agree on the essentials of the charge that they're bringing. At some point in this process, Matthew tells us that at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Consider for just a moment the logic of the charge. The accusation is that Jesus is going to lead a band of Galilean peasant warriors on a raid against the temple and tear it down to the ground. Obviously, the notion is preposterous. But while this meets the minimum requirement of the law, it seems that even these two, though they agree on this part of their story, Mark tells us, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Caiaphas is getting frustrated. If he could not get two witnesses to come forward with the same charge, whose testimony agree under examination, they couldn't kill Jesus. Caiaphas' savior comes from an unexpected source, Jesus himself. Caiaphas turns to Jesus and says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus' answer does not disappoint. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus' response applies the most apocalyptic and messianic passage from Daniel to himself. The passage depicts the kingdoms of the world being stripped of their power by God the Father and all of the power and authority being given to one like the Son of Man, whose kingdom will last forever. You can imagine Caiaphas is dumbfounded that he had actually given him what he was looking for. And Caiaphas tore his robes. He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? While all of this is going on, Peter and John had been following Jesus into his trial. John, whose family has some sort of connection to Caiaphas, is allowed to enter into the high priest's compound, but Peter has to wait outside. So John went outside and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The girl comes up to Peter later and asks, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. A little while later, another servant girl says to some bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Peter is of course from Galilee and he carries with him at all times an undeniable accent that gives him away. So some bystanders say to him, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. 
Jesus is being beaten and mistreated by members of the Sanhedrin, and in what perhaps is the most chilling scene in all of Scripture, as the rooster crows, Jesus turns and makes eye contact with Peter. Flooding into Peter's mind is something Jesus had told him merely hours before. Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. The sun is up, and the Sanhedrin needs no further evidence. They are settled on the death penalty. So they take Jesus, bound, and lead him to Pilate, the Roman governor. While Peter is weeping over his sin, the weight of what Judas has done is tied around his neck like a great millstone. So he goes to the Sanhedrin. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. Pilate was the governor of Judea, but would have normally been in his permanent residence in Caesarea Maritima. However, for pilgrimage festivals, Roman authorities were to be in Jerusalem so as to squash any insurrections or riots that might take place since the vast majority of their people would be in Jerusalem during this time. For the most part, the Sanhedrin had the right to rule in most of the affairs of the land, and they could recommend the death penalty for someone, but the Roman governors reserved the right of execution for themselves. So if the Jews wanted Jesus dead, Pilate would have to be the one to issue the order. So Pilate meets the Sanhedrin outside his home. What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The Jewish leadership knows that Pilate doesn't care if someone is guilty of blasphemy. There's no way he'll put someone to death for such a meaningless charge. So they try to make the charge a rebellion against Rome instead of the temple. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate takes Jesus inside his home for a private interview and he asks him if he thinks he is a king. Jesus answers him, my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate responds, so you are a king. Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate obviously doesn't see Jesus or his spiritual kingdom as a threat, so he tells the Jewish authorities waiting outside as much. I find no guilt in him. But the Jewish authorities aren't having it. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Once Pilate finds out he's a Galilean, he realizes he can't merely sentence a citizen of another tetrarchy to death. He sends him to Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee, for an impromptu trial. Herod actually has some familiarity with Jesus, even to the point that he thought Jesus might be John the Baptist reincarnate. However, Jesus refuses to answer any of his questions, so Herod treated Jesus the way the Roman Empire treated political pretenders. Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. 
Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Once Jesus receives his second not guilty verdict, this time from the ruler of his home tetrarch, Pilate has reached the conclusion. You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. However, Pilate's in a predicament. It seems that Pilate's standing with Emperor Tiberius may have been on shaky ground. One of Pilate's key supporters, likely the one who helped get Pilate to this point in his career, was recently executed for treason. Pilate couldn't afford an uprising, so he has Jesus flogged. So when the Jews insist, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This likely weighs on Pilate. By this point, something of a crowd has formed. A tradition has arisen where one criminal is released during the festival. So Pilate brings Jesus and a criminal by the name of Barabbas, who is most likely charged with an actual insurrection before the crowd. Pilate asks, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus? who is called Christ. But before the crowd can answer, Pilate's wife sends him a message. Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much of him today in a dream. Most likely assuming that the crowd is going to release Jesus, Pilate is surprised when they say Barabbas. So then Pilate says, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released from them Barabbas, And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The insurrectionist against the kingdom goes free, and the innocent man is crucified in his place. Jesus is marched before the governor's soldiers. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. The soldiers strip him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him, and Jesus is led away to be crucified. A great crowd has now gathered around to march with Jesus up to Golgotha, where he is to be crucified. Badly beaten and no doubt weakened by the scourging, the soldiers seize a passerby. Simon of Cyrene, who is coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. The women who were following Jesus, no doubt many were his supporters in his ministry, were wailing at the sight of what was happening to him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, Do not weep for me, 
Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Jesus is lamenting yet again the tragedy that will befall the city of Jerusalem and the temple for its unbelief. In nearly 40 years from his crucifixion, this same Roman Empire that they're now in league with will march in to decimate the city and leave no stone unturned. Thousands of Jews will be crucified. Today, Jesus is being led with his own cross to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, outside the city, keeping with the Old Testament law to be crucified. Now, the Gospel writers are somewhat sparse on the details of the crucifixion itself. The one thing is clear. They continue to mock him. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And Jesus responds to their derision, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While others, even the one that was being crucified with him, mocked him, another on a cross next to him says, This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Above Jesus' head hangs the charge for which he is crucified. However, the charge of a crime was not written as a charge, but as a title. In fact, the Jewish leaders noticed this and sought to have it changed. John tells us, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Jesus hangs on the cross for approximately six hours. Mark tells us that they crucified him in the mid-morning, and from about noon until about three, darkness covered the land. Darkness is a sign throughout the Old Testament of divine judgment. The point that God and the New Testament writers are likely making is that on the cross, Jesus was bearing the judgment of God for the sins of the world through his tragic death. 
Finally, Jesus calls to mind the prophecy of Psalm 22 when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then Jesus cried with a loud voice, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When the wrath of God on the sin of his people had been poured out, Jesus died. Matthew tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. As Sabbath was drawing close, the bodies weren't to remain on the cross. Traditionally, the Roman soldiers would break the legs of the crucified to ensure they suffocate. However, John tells us when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Finally, and with a bit of irony, two members of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, took Jesus' body, bound it in linens, and buried it in a tomb. The events of Good Friday tell us first that our sin is an offense to God. We know this because in order to justify his people, he killed his own son. Do not live your life as if your sin matters little in the grand scheme of things. God takes it very seriously. But the events of Good Friday also tell us that God loves us. Rather than leaving you to die in your sin and face the full force of his wrath against you, he sent his son to take your place. Like Barabbas, me, an insurrectionist against God's kingdom, goes free, while an innocent man, Jesus, is crucified in my place. Friend, don't let this week pass without seriously considering where you stand with God. If you aren't currently a follower of Christ, I pray you would turn to him in confession of your sin and find forgiveness that he offers in his cross.